They say this is a big rich town. I just come from the poorest part. Bright light, city life, I gotta make it. Now, here's Dominic Carter on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Dominic Carter, Talk Radio 77 WABC. Police have an impossible job. Police have an impossible job. With me right now is a retired NYPD officer, Dr. Tom Coughlin. He is the owner of Blue Line Psychological Services. I have visited his office. He is the real deal. Now in private practice, psychotherapy for law enforcement and other first responders, ranging from FEMA as a first responder psychologist to Homeland Security, the Drug Enforcement Administration's EAP program, NYPD-affiliated peer support program. The list goes on and on. Dr. Coughlin, thank you for joining us. Dominic, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, you do remarkable work, and you really are a hero on the front line. First, the first part of your career as an officer, and then in psychological services within NYPD, and now still giving back in private practice. I want to begin with what has been in the news as of late, dominating the headlines. I don't understand the mentality, the psychology of this young lady in Harlem. You know about the incident. We all do. The female 19-year-old where she pushed and apparently slapped the uh, officer, and then it was very um, tragic, but the officer, uh, not realizing what was going on around him, he hit her, she uh, fell, hit the pavement. But talk to me, if you will, Tom Coughlin, about the psychology as someone that's been on the job where people think some people think they can interfere with law enforcement and with the NYPD. Thank you so much, Dominic. You know, let's go back to the word you used and you repeated twice to talk about police work. Impossible, right? The work is nearly impossible. And I think one of the things that people lose sight of is that law enforcement is never pretty. It's police work is never pretty. Even proper application of the use of force, good justified use of force, good police work, it is never pretty to go out and enforce the law and do police work. But in the age of body cameras and the age of increased scrutiny on police officers and the age of cell phone cameras, we have much more of a window into the world of that unpretty work. And so just because the work looks not pretty doesn't mean it's not good, justifiable use of force. And for many years, I would suggest we can go back into the history of this, but for many years there has been a growing sense that interfering with police work um, has some just cause to it, that people have some right to interfere with police doing police work, uh, obstructing governmental administration, resisting arrest, engaging in disorderly conduct with the police while they're trying to effect arrest. In fact, um, if we go to both sides of the aisle and we go back to 
the words of, of Mayor de Blasio in 2014. When we go back to Mayor de Blasio, perhaps one of the most progressive uh, mayors we've had in many, many years, the words of Mayor de Blasio is that when a police officer comes to the decision, that is, they've established probable cause, that it is time to arrest someone, that individual is obligated to submit to arrest. And then he went on to say, every New Yorker should agree to do what they need to do as a citizen and respect the officer and follow their guidance. And that was followed up by City Council Member Jamani Williams, who said, follow the orders of the police. Do not resist what they are asking you to do and follow their orders, right? And so we have on both sides of the aisle quite the, um, uh, the, the word out there that what you must do in these situations is not obstruct governmental administration, not resist arrest, not interfere with police trying to, to affect the lawful arrest. And if there is an issue with, with poor police work or bad police work or unjustifiable arrest, well, then you deal with the due process that the court system affords you, right? But there has become an increasing culture in our society of pushing to advocate for the resisting of arrest, pushing to interfere with police work. And it's, it's, there is no scenario where it's justified to do it. Agreed of a thousand percent. And uh, th this was a very uh, tough lesson for this young lady to have undergone. And, and by the way, uh, I, I should point out that you will be honored in October, but I will come back to that in just a second. We are chatting with someone that is the real deal, Tom Coughlin. Dr. Tom Coughlin, uh, retired NYPD. He owns Blue Line Psychological Services, now in private practice, psychotherapy for law enforcement, other first responders from FEMA to Homeland Security to the DEA to NYPD. So I, I guess I, I want to go to a much broader question, uh, Dr. Coughlin. What is the state of mental health in policing today and why? Dominic, unfortunately, and I wish I had a better answer, I wish I had a more... Um, positive answer. The state of mental health and policing today is poor. And the reason it is poor is that when we look at when we look at reciprocity, right? No it's 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 the rare person who goes into police work because they have aspirations to become rich or become wildly successful in that kind of material way in the world. Most people go most people go into policing because they have a sense of wanting to be part of uh, of the better side of society. They want to be one of the good guys. In recent years, there's become a lack of reciprocity in that experience. Cops are not experiencing a return on investment for the work they're putting into their job. They're not getting, there's a lack of reciprocity from their agency. There's a lack of reciprocity from the community. And eventually what that leads to over years, it leads to burnout. It leads to this experience of becoming burned out in doing the job. You become apathetic to the work. You become indifferent to the work. Potentially, you develop what we call compassion fatigue over the years, where you just lose a sense of empathy for the people who need you most. Uh, and this idea of a lack of reciprocity, it truly eats away at our, at our police officers and our agents and our troopers out there in the street. Um, and in, in, until we can turn around, until we can change the culture, not only in society, but also within 
police organizations within agencies where there is greater reciprocity for our officers and they feel as if they are, are valued, that their work means something, and that they're going to work to be part of a good system um, until we do away with things like these uh, no-cash bail reforms, et cetera, et cetera, these other, these, these other policies, uh, that, that lack of reciprocity will just remain, right? And so we need our officers to feel supported. We need them to believe that what they're doing matters, and we need a sense of reciprocity from both the communities and from their organizations. Talk to me a bit further about, you just alluded to it, about the solution, more of the solution, because right now what we're dealing with, Tom Coughlin, are police officers that that feel that the politicians just don't have their back. And, and there's, there's qualified immunity. I mean, it almost seems like almost everything that could go wrong is going wrong for police officers on the front line, putting their life on the line each and every day. And, and Dominic, I'll tell you, it's not only our local police officers. I work with law enforcement at the local, at the state, at the federal level. Uh, and what I can tell you is that this experience, this experience of burnout, this sense of lack of reciprocity, it is it has spread, it has permeated throughout the field of law enforcement, not only local policing, state level policing, federal agencies. Um, I work in my practice with law enforcement from all levels of government, civilian and uniform employees. And I can tell you that this experience, this um, this sense of distress, this sense of despair that's running through our, our offices. We have officers retiring in droves. Um, it used to be my grandfather was on the job from 1938 to 1972, 34 years, and his son was on the job as well. And it used to be that when you came on the job, you stayed on the job. The mentality now is 20 and out. Let me do my time and let me get out. And the more and more I find is that the officers that I'm working with in, in therapy who were around, say, 14, 15, 16 years on, they are emotionally and mentally limping to the finish line just trying with a sense of desperation to make it to that time so they can get out. That was never the mentality in the past. It is the mentality now because there is a true sense of despair among our law enforcement today. Talk to me, Dr. Coughlin, uh, and, and, and you have all the credentials. Uh, you've actually worked in the, uh, in the uh, department, mental health department, screening officers, uh, in terms of uh, mental health issues. So you, you've, you've been on the front line. Talk to me, to us, about police suicides. It's a story that I've covered a very long time, and it breaks my heart every time when I think about the fact that an officer, he or she may feel that they are no other choice, and they decide for personal problems, professional problems, they decide to take their own lives. It seems like we're dealing with more and more increased police suicides. Dominic, every single one breaks my heart. And it's a topic that I, even I have a difficult time talking about because every single one breaks my heart. Um, to, to fully discuss police suicide, we could discuss this literally for days on end in workshops. But to, to bring
bring it together concisely. When we look at suicide, we have three primary factors, right? We have a sense of helplessness, meaning that I am unable, I have no ability to change my situation. We have a sense of hopelessness, which means that today is as good as it will ever be, and today is really bad. Tomorrow will only ever be worse. And we have a sense of unbearable emotional pain. I can no longer do this. When we put those three pieces together, that sense of psychic, that unbearable emotional pain, that sense of hopelessness, that sense of helplessness, when we put those three things together and then we pour on top of that ready access to a firearm and and a culture, unfortunately, a culture in law enforcement that has not moved away, it's moving away, but has not fully moved away from self-medication with alcohol and acceptance of alcohol abuse within the culture and a stigma against mental health and a stigma against reaching out and getting mental health treatment. When you put those things together in a pot, suicide almost, almost becomes an inevitability at times. Um, I am so happy that since 2019, the numbers have begun to come down, um, but, but we haven't beaten it yet. Right? And, I, and I believe, if you would ask me to define what is the crux of the matter, I believe that, that really the linchpin here is organizational culture. And I could tell you stories um, about things I've seen and things I've heard within the agency, but what I can tell you is that there are two different sides of the messaging that goes on in law enforcement organizations. There is one side of, of messaging from the top down that says it's okay to not be okay. We want you to reach out. We want you to ask for help. Uh, you know, we want you to make use of all these agency services that, that, we're, that we're making available to you. And then there's another side where in reality there is unfortunately, there are unfortunately consequences, career consequences at times for doing just that. And so until we bring those two messages together and, and find a, a happy compromise where there are no longer consequences whatsoever to reaching out for mental health help and getting the treatment that people need when they feel hopeless, when they feel helpless, when they're in unbearable pain, um, until organizational cultures change and the agency culture changes. Uh, we, we've done good work. Uh, we, we've great, great legislation out there that, that's supporting law enforcement suicide uh, pre prevention measures. There's a lot more work to be done. We are talking with Dr. Tom Coglin, the owner of Blue Line Psychological Services. He's worked from uh, federal agencies and first responders to NYPD for many years. He's retired NYPD himself. The work that you do, Dr. Coughlin, is, is so positive and so helpful. There's an event coming up on October 23rd where you will be honored at St. Francis Preparatory High School, a first responder memorial scholarship fund uh, event. Tell me about that. Thank you so much for giving me that opportunity, Dominic. Um, yes, I am I am extremely honored, uh, humbled. Um to, to announce that on October 23rd uh, of this year, myself and, and two other alumni of St. Francis Preparatory School uh, will be honored at a 5K run and walk as well as a mass and a scholarship event. Um, it's in memory of the First Responders Memorial Scholarship Fund at St. Francis Prep, where they identify alumni from the high school who have gone on into the field of first responder work and, and left their mark sort of on that world. Uh, it'll be myself. It will be uh, a retired. Uh, it'll be an alum from uh, the fire department and an alum who was a U.S. Navy commander for many years. Uh, and the three of us will be honored um, 
um, at this Memorial Scholarship event. It's a 5K uh, run walk at St. Francis Prep on uh, October 23rd. Um, very, very excited to be there, very honored. And, and I tell you, any any success that I've had, um, I, I absolutely attribute to the amazing, really wonderful education that I received at St. Francis Prep during my times there from 84 to 88. Um, and I'm just, uh, my father was a graduate class of 58. I followed in his steps and graduated in 88. My daughter followed my steps and graduated there in 21. And um, I am just so honored and, and humbled to, to be there. And uh, anybody who wanted to participate or, or contribute, um, they can go online to sfponline.org or go to the, um, the SFP site at the uh, First Responders Memorial Scholarship Fund uh, and get all the information there if they wanted to participate. Well, Dr. Coughlin, we, we thank you for uh, joining us, and I will have an extended conversation with Dr. Tom Coughlin for my podcast, which will be posted, uh, posted, that is, at some point later on tomorrow, tomorrow on Tuesday. It is now time for a break, and and before we do so, let me remind you folks that on this Labor Day, coming up in just minutes at the top of the hour, Curtis Sliwa in for Frank Morano, the other side of midnight. I am going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to the telephone calls again, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222, and I will explain why Sunday for me on a very personal level was a bitter sweet day. We'll be right back. WABC. 